Volume 1, Chapter 12, Part 1 of A Popular History of England From the Earliest Times to the Reign of Queen Victoria This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. A Popular History of England from the Earliest Times to the Reign of Queen Victoria by Francois Guillemin Guzette. Chapter 12. Part 1. Bolingbroke, Richard II, 1377 to 1398. Henry IV, 1398 to 1413. The little King Richard was much fatigued on the 16th of July, 1377. It was found necessary to place him in a litter to bring him back to the palace after his coronation. All the former popularity of his grandfather, Edward III, all the affection which his father, the Black Prince, had inspired, appeared to have accumulated upon his head by reason of the fear and aversion which were felt towards John of Gaunt, Duke of Lancaster. The prelates and barons assembled on the morrow of the coronation and selected the council of regency of twelve members. The uncles of the king did not form part of this body, and John of Gaunt retired to his castle of Kellingworth, but several members of the council remained devoted to him, and his influence soon began to be complained of. The king of France, Charles V, had lost no time in taking advantage of the weakness of the English government. His fleets overran the Channel, fettering commerce and seizing the British vessels. A dissent was even made upon the Isle of Wight. The Parliament was convoked, and the Earl of Buckingham, the uncle of the King, was placed at the head of the naval forces. His expedition against the French fleet miscarried, and his defeat increased the discontent of the nation. The Parliament was composed chiefly of the enemies of the Duke of Lancaster, and when a kind of reconciliation had been effected between the latter and the House of Commons, that assembly demanded that two citizens of London should be entrusted to receive the money voted for the defence of the country. John of Gaunt started for France with a large army, 1378. The King of Navarre, still at war with Charles V, had a portion of Normandy. He had surrendered Cherbourg to the English. The Duke of Brittany, John de Montfort, being reduced to the last extremity by the successes of Bertrand de Gerslin, had consigned Brest to them. These acquisitions were due to the free will of the Allies of England, and not to its arms. John of Gaunt was defeated before St. Malo, and being pursued by Duke Gerslin, was compelled to return to England, while the Scots, at the instigation of France, invaded the northern counties and took possession of Berwick Castle. A Scottish pirate named John Mercer devastated the coast as far as Scarborough. A London merchant named John Philpot, on the other hand, armed a small fleet and hastening to the encounter of Mercia, recaptured from him all the vessels which the latter had seized. Captured, besides, fifteen Spanish ships, returned triumphantly onto the Thames, a 
amid the plaudits of his fellow citizens, and to the indignation of the council, which reprimanded the alderman for the boldness of his undertaking, the Parliament had assembled at Gloucester, disaffected and exacting. The commons asked to examine the accounts, which was granted to them as a favour. John de Montfort had recently taken refuge in England, banished from his dominions by King Charles V, who committed the impudent act of officially annexing the Duchy of Brittany to France. This declaration immediately rallied all the different factions against him. Jean de Montfort was recalled. The States-General of Brittany wrote to the King of France, asking him to authorise them to retain their independent ruler. At the same time, an English army, under the command of the Earl of Buckingham, landed at Calais, and ravaged the provinces of Artois, Picardy, and Champagne, without ever encountering the necessity of a serious combat. The English were arriving in Brittany when King Charles V died, 1378, and the Bretons, reassured by the weakness of the young King Charles VI, began to look coldly upon their English allies. De Montfort negotiated with the French Council of Regency, and Buckingham was only indebted for his safety to the valour of his troops and to the provisions which he had brought. He retired in the spring of 1379. Great events were in preparation in England. For some years, a double movement, religious and social, had begun secretly to agitate the English people. A priest, John Wycliffe, born towards 1324 in Yorkshire, had attracted attention at the University of Oxford by his rare faculties and had commenced in the year 1356 to denounce the abuses of the papal authority. He had then attacked the mendicant monks, accusing the church in general of greed and corruption, summoned to appear before the Bishop of London in the last year of the reign of Edward III to answer for his opinions. He had been supported by the Duke of Lancaster and his friend Lord Percy. Both had even insulted the bishop which had brought about an insurrection in the city. Wycliffe had retracted some of his ideas, he had explained others, and thanks to his powerful protectors, he had obtained the living of Lutterworth in Leicestershire, where he spent the remainder of his life, surrounded by priests, whom he brought up in truly apostolic poverty and who subsequently spread his opinions among the people. Wycliffe is the first of the reformers, or rather their precursor. His doctrines acted more powerfully abroad than in, in his own country. It is to his books that were due the first germs of the Reformation in Bohemia. For England, his greatest work was the translation of the Bible into the vernacular. The most important of his ideas was the appeal to the private judgment of the faithful upon the very text of the Holy Scriptures. Wycliffe had shaken the traditions of submission to the clergy. He had at the same time preached a dangerous doctrine. All possessions, he said, come of grace and may be forfeited by sin. The poor serfs who possess nothing might be anxious to profit in their turn by the grace which ensured estates. Wycliffe died peacefully at Lutterworth in 1384.
already for two years past, his illustrious friend, Geoffrey Chaucer, the first creator of English poetry, had been compelled to quit England. Compromised by his attachment to the new ideas, he had retired into Hainault, where he lived in peace, protected by the friendship of the Duke of Lancaster. The thirst works of Chaucer, The Court of Love, The Poem of Trullis and Cressidi, The Temple of Fame, had been published several years before, and had assured to him a reputation which had largely contributed to his fortune. The English language at this time, still largely intermixed with French, and difficult to understand at the present time, assumed under the pen of Chaucer a native grace to which sometimes succeeds an energy which prepared the way for Spencer and Shakespeare. Chaucer again established himself in England, when John of Gaunt returned from his expedition to Castile. He lived to an advanced age, and composed in his retreat of Dummington his Canterbury Tales, written in the style of the Decamerion of Bocairico, and the only one of his books which is still read at the present day. He died in 1400, the year following the accession of Henry Bolingbroke, the son of his protector. Like Wycliffe, he had seen the commencement of the popular agitations. The poll tax, voted by the Parliament in 1379, was their first opportunity. A general movement towards the enfranchisement of the lower classes manifested itself everywhere in Europe. The insurrection of the Jacqueur in France, the resistance of the Flemish citizens and artisans, first to the conduct of Jacques Ver, Adverdout, and afterward to that of Philip, his son, had testified to the awakening of the serfs, the peasants and the artisans, so long reduced to the condition of beasts of burden. The kings had been in need of money, and the taxes weighing upon all their subjects, it had been necessary to conciliate them. The soldiery had acquired a new importance, the English archers, in particular nearly all peasants by origin, had played an important part in the wars. When the tax collectors began in 1380 to demand payment of the poll tax, of a people already impoverished by a long series of exactions, they met with a resistance which increased with the oppression. The tax at first collected of leniency was let out to some courtiers. They borrowed in advance of the Lombards and Flemings. Repayment became necessary and the revenue was exacted with great severity. The peasants became exasperated. They began to assemble and confer together. The insurrection broke out in Essex. The commons of England, as the insurgents starred themselves, broke into several dwelling houses in the neighbourhood. They obeyed a seditious priest who assumed the name of Jack Straw. The congregation rapidly spread into the counties of Kent, Suffolk, and Northwick. The tax was payable only in the case of persons above fourteen years of age. A Kentish collector maintained that the daughter of Attila had attained a specified age. Her mother maintained the contrary. The collector insulted the young girl and was brained with a hammer by the father. A knight had reclaimed a serf who thought he was entitled to enfranchisement and had imprisoned him in Rochester Castle. The peasants attacked the castle 
and compelled the garrison to surrender the prisoner, the Kentish insurgents marched under the command of a chief named Watt Tyler, Watt the Tyler. On the Monday of Trinity Week in 1381, they entered Canterbury, threatening death to the archbishop, who was absent. The monks of the chapter house were compelled to swear fidelity to King Richard and the commons of England. Three wealthy burgesses were beheaded, and the crowd proceeded towards London. It is related that 100,000 men followed close upon the steps of Watt Tyler when he arrived on the 11th of June at Blackheath. The Princess of Wales, the mother of the young king, was returning from a pilgrimage. The crowd of insurgents surrounded her retinue. She was popular by reason of her husband's memory, and her ransom cost her only some kisses bestowed upon the more audacious of the leaders, who had not forgotten that she had formerly been called the Fair Maid of Kent. She passed by without further difficulty. The malcontents thronged round an itinerant preacher whom they had brought with them, and who displayed to them this text, now famous. When Adam delved and Eve span, where was then the gentleman? The doctrine of equality was received with enthusiasm by these poor people, hitherto trodden underfoot. The outskirts of London were laid waste when the king proceeded down the Thames on the 12th of June to receive the petition of the insurgents. Ten thousand men awaited his arrival at Rotherfight, but at the sight of the royal barge they uttered such cries, says Frozart, that one would have thought that all the demons of hell were in their midst. The noblemen who accompanied Richard became alarmed, and dragged him with them as far as the tower. The commons of England, in a state of fury, advanced along the right bank of the river as far as Lambeth, burnt down the prisons, and plundered the palace of the archbishop. On the other side of the Thames, the insurgents marched along the course of the river, and at length, obtaining a passage over London Bridge, they joined their brothers of Kent. The whole city was in their power, population of London had joined them, and the rich citizens, to please them, had thrown open their cellars to them. Hitherto the multitude had behaved with a certain amount of order, but intoxication being once added to the joy of triumph, they could no longer be restrained. The palace of the Duke of Lancaster was invaded and burnt down. Plunder was strictly forbidden. The gold was reduced to powder, and the precious stones were broken. A peasant had taken a bowl of money. He was thrown into the river with his booty. The prisons being opened and destroyed brought fresh reinforcements to the insurgents. The temple was burnt with all the valuable books which had been collected by the knights. The Priory of St. John of Jerusalem, recently constructed by Sir Thomas Hales, a prior of the order and chancellor of the kingdom, was also delivered up to the flames. A thirst for blood began to take possession of the populace. Every passer-by was challenged. For whom are you? was asked. If the answer was not, for King Richard and the true commons, the person answering was immediately slaughtered. All the Flemings fell by the knife or the hatchet. The popular hatred sought them out, even in the churches. Wine and blood flowed in the streets. The councillors of the king resolved to try concessions. On the morning of the 14th of June, a proclamation was spread throughout London, recommending the crowd which surrounded the tower, 
and demanded the heads of the Chancellor and Treasurer to retreat towards Marland. The King promised there to come to them and to grant their requests. A portion of the mob obeyed, and Richard arrived with a weak retinue at the meeting place. His brothers, the Earl of Kent and Lord John Holland, had quitted him on the road. He saw himself surrounded by sixty thousand peasants. Their tone was respectful, and the requests which then appeared monstrous do not create the same impression at the present day. They demanded the definitive abolition of servitude, the power to sell and purchase in all markets, and a general amnesty for the past. To this they added a strange claim to fix the amount of rental on lands. The king promised all that they wished, and immediately caused to be made a large number of copies of the charter which he had thus granted. These were distributed amongst the insurgents. The men of Essex and Hartford retired in a body, but the malcontents of Kent had remained in the capital, and had not appeared at the meeting place in Marland. Scarcely had the king retired, when these dangerous foes attacked the tower, beheading the councillors who had taken refuge therein, the Archbishop of Canterbury, the Treasurer, Sir Thomas Hale, and several others, the Princess of Wales, while yet in bed, saw a furious mob spring into her chamber. No injury was done to her, and her attendants were enabled to throw her, fainting with fright, into a little boat. She was conveyed to a house in the city belonging to the king, who there came and joined her, when he had learnt the sad news of the massacre at the tower. In the morning, Richard issued forth with a small escort, and advanced fearlessly towards Smithfield. The multitude thronged the streets and squares. The king drew up at St. Pertholomew's Priory, I will go no further, he said, without having pacified the insurgents. What Tyler had perceived him, and urging his horse toward him. There is the king, I go to speak to him, he cried to his supporters. Do not move a hand or foot unless I give you the signal. The horse of the popular chief touched heads with that of the king. Sir king, said Wat Tyler, do you see those men yonder? Yes, replied the young prince without stirring. They are at my disposal, and ready to do as I bid them. And he toyed of his dagger, holding the bridle of the royal courser. Then perceiving behind Richard an esquire who had displeased him, Ah, you here, he said, give me your sword. The esquire refused. What Tyler made a motion to take possession of it. The followers of the king were roused. The Lord Mayor of London, William Walworth, urged forward his horse, and advancing towards the rebel, struck him a blow with the dagger. The horse reared. Tyler endeavoured to return to his followers. The squire of the king thrust his sword through his body. He fell, beating the air of his hands. The mob became agitated. Our captain is slain, was the cry, and the bowstrings began to vibrate. Richard advanced alone towards the crowd. "'What do you, my friends?' he exclaimed. "'Tyler was a traitor. It is I who am your captain and your guide.' He drew after him this irresolute mob, deprived of their chief, and who marched without knowing whither they were bound. They arrived in the fields near Islington. The friends of the king had rallied round him. 
one of the chiefs of his three bands, Sir Robert Knowles, brought a body of men-at-arms. The insurgents took alarm, threw down their bows and cried mercy. The king would not suffer them to be slaughtered in a mass. To the great exasperation of Sir Robert Knowles, he said that he would be even with them on another occasion, says Froissart, in which he did not fail. The insurrection subsided everywhere. The Bishop of Norwich had armed his household and his friends, and hastening to throw himself upon the peasants, he had easily defeated these confused masses, little accustomed to arms. He had himself drawn up their indictment and pronounced their sentence. Then resuming his clerical costume, he had exhorted them, received their confession, absolved them, and finally accompanied them to the gallows. The king was at the head of a small army, had marched against the remainder of the insurgents of Essex. It was no longer a question of charters. The courts of commission were everywhere assembling to try the guilty. The two priests, John Straw and John Ball, were hanged. Leicester and Whistbourne, who had assumed the title of kings of the commons in the counties of Norfolk and Suffolk, suffered the same fate. About 1,500 rioters were executed. It was found necessary to fix them to the gibbet with iron chains. Their friends came by night to carry off their bodies. The Parliament had assembled, publicly approving of the abolition of the concessions granted to the villains during the struggle. We would never have consented to them, said the barons, even had we all been compelled to perish on the same day. For the moment there was some talk of abolishing servitude. The opposition was so strenuous Proprietors of fiefs declared so loudly that their serfs belonged to them by right, that they could not be deprived of them without their consent, that the idea was immediately abandoned, and the high treason law was voted, condemning riots, disturbances, and other analogous things, in terms as dangerous as they were vague. The king demanded money. The commons claimed a complete amnesty neither would begin to make concessions. The Parliament at length yielded. The tax upon wool and leather was prolonged for five years, and the King proclaimed the amnesty. He was about to wed Anne of Bohemia, soon known throughout the whole of her kingdom as the Good Queen. The Bishop of Norwich was fighting in Flanders, in support of the citizens of Ghent, hard-pressed by their Count. Recently a victor at the Battle of Rosebeek, where Philip van Artevelt had been killed, and the uncles of the king contended with each other for the authority in England. The Earl of Cambridge had been made Duke of York, and the Earl of Buckingham Duke of Gloucester. Henry Bolingbroke, son of the Duke of Lancaster, had become Earl of Derby. At the same time, the king had made Earl of Suffolk, and Duke of Ireland, his favourites Michael de la Pole, and Robert de Thier, obscure persons, whom the Princess of Wales had placed beside her son, for reason of her jealousy towards his uncles, and who contributed by their influence the struggles and disputes of the government. The princess had recently died, having succumbed beneath the weight of the anxieties caused by one of her sons, Lord John Holland. He had recently assassinated one of the servants of the king, and was unable to quit the church in which he had taken refuge. Plot succeeded plot, 
denunciation to denunciation. At length, the Duke of Lancaster started out for Spain in order to sustain the pretensions of his wife to the throne of Castile, and he contrived after two campaigns to marry his eldest daughter to the heir of Henry of Transtamaya, thus assuring the crown to her children. The Scots had crossed the frontier, and King Richard entered Scotland. France was preparing a great armament. Amidst these external preoccupations, the Duke of Gloucester had seized the reins of government, and when the young king threatened to dissolve a parliament devoted to his uncle, the commons brought forward the act which had deposed Edward II. A council of barons for a while governed the kingdom under the presidency of Gloucester. Blood flowed everywhere. The duke avenged himself upon the favourites of the king, who were as odious to him as to the English people. He had impeached them before the parliament. The innocent were involved in the ruin of the guilty. Gloucester did not even spare Sir Simon Burley, formerly the tutor of the king, the friend of Edward III and the Black Prince, and who had conducted the negotiations for the marriage of Richard. The Queen, in vain, threw herself at his feet, asking for mercy. In vain did Henry Bolingbroke, who had seconded his uncle in all his undertakings, claim as a right the pardon of the condemned man. Burley was executed, and Bolingbroke became definitely at violence with Gloucester. The disorder which prevailed in England did not prevent constant hostilities upon the frontiers of Scotland. It was on August 15, 1388, that there took place at Otterbourne, the famous battle celebrated in the Ballards under the name of Chevy Chase, between the Earl of Douglas and Lord Henry Percy, the Hotspur of Shakespeare. Douglas was slain, but the English ended by being repulsed from the battlefield. Hotspur and his brother were prisoners. The king was beginning to weary of the yoke which he had so long borne. He was subject to gleams of resolution and courage, which soon disappeared in a long spell of indolence, which took by surprise those who calculated upon his habitual apathy. A council has been held in the month of May 1389. The king suddenly addressed the Duke of Gloucester. How old do you suppose I am, uncle? he asked. Your highness is in your twenty-second year, replied the duke, much surprised. Then, replied the king, I am at an age when I should govern my own affairs. Nobody in my kingdom has been so long held under tutelage. I thank you for your services, my lord, but I no longer require them. And he immediately caused the great seal and the keys of the treasure to be given up to himself, compelling the Duke of Gloucester to leave the council, announcing publicly to the nation that he had henceforth assumed the direction of the government but his fleeting energy had already abandoned him. The Duke of York and Henry Bolingbroke were his masters instead of the Duke of Gloucester. End of chapter 12, part 1